In this episode, we welcome Madison Van Ort, PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota. Madison conducts research in the areas of fast fashion and low-wage labor in the 21st century. The format of the conversation will be slightly different than past episodes, as Madison joins us to reflect on the strengths and limitations of the discourse and semiotic analysis that she employed in collaboration with me, Kyle Green, to study how companies employed the crisis of masculinity to sell products. Our co-authored article, We Wear No Pants, Selling the Crisis of Masculinity in the 2010 Super Bowl Commercials, can be found in the spring 2013 issue of Signs. I enjoyed the chance to participate with Madison in some of the methodological reflections, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Hi, Madison. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're here to reflect on the experience we had conducting visual analysis of media, in particular using discourse or semiotic analysis to study commercials. If you were to introduce this type of methodological approach to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? So we thought about our semiotic approach as something that reveals how meaning is attached to images. So, for instance, we're thinking about how wearing pants might symbolize masculinity. Similarly, a discursive approach is something that shifts the analysis to think about how the styles and the rhetoric that are employed actually relate to the power relations of that context. So in that case, thinking about how wearing pants in this particular historical moment, especially depending on the kind of pants, say dockers versus blue jeans, might relate to, say, certain patriarchal myths about breadwinning and class identities, but also broader changing relationships to work and economic security. And when we talk about these methods, we have to also talk about how within the social sciences, there's a number of different approaches to coding visual media. Sociologists often are more likely to use something like content analysis, which is when the analyst seeks to discover common themes and patterns in a group of images or text. And this often takes a quantitative turn, and the goal here is greater replicability and a desire to answer a more clearly objective set of questions. So in contrast, the semiotic or discursive approach that we use in our study allows for a more qualitative analysis. So let's use the research that we conducted on the selling of the crisis of masculinity in the 2010 Super Bowl commercial to really understand what this method looks like in practice. So going back to the beginning, what were our central research questions or or what was the guiding topic that we were looking at? So you and I came together uh, one day in our office after we had both just watched the Super Bowl, and I think we were just having kind of a casual conversation about what we saw, and I think we both had a hunch there was something different about this year. There was something particularly interesting about how men and masculinity were being portrayed in 2010, Um, and we were thinking specifically about the use of violence and how kind of like aggressive the commercials were against men. And so we were really thinking about how we could understand this from a sort of sociological perspective. So our research questions ended up being, um, what are some of the main narratives that are actually coming out in these 2010 Super Bowl commercials? And how can we understand those narratives as situated within a particular social context or historical moment? And then importantly, how do these narratives compare to what's already been documented about Super Bowl commercials in years past? And so for this study, we relied pretty heavily on this article by Mesner and Montez de Oca that appeared in Signs, um, in which they analyzed Super Bowl commercials in the early 2000s. So we saw our analysis as kind of engaging with and perhaps even updating that piece. 
Could you talk a bit more about the methodological design or what we actually did to answer those questions? For this project, we watched every Super Bowl commercial that was presented from 2008 to 2010, and we paid particular attention to things like the company, the type of product, um, the characters that were portrayed in each commercial in terms of race, class, gender, uh, the dominant messages and themes, and the discursive strategies that were employed in each commercial. So, for instance, um, was the commercial violent or was it more humorous? Um, and so here we tried to really just kind of do a quick quantitative analysis as a base to set the foundation or, like, check what we were seeing. Um, and we sought to understand from there how signs within the commercial operated within these broader discourses presented in the commercials. And so kind of similar to journalists or cultural commentators, we analyzed both the individual ads as well as how they related to other Super Bowl commercials to kind of create a, this larger narrative package. Um, and so then really when we did our article um, for this study, our sampling was um, therefore theoretical or purposive rather than like representative in nature since we were analyzing significant discursive themes and their semiotic workings. Um, and so in our science article, we focus on three paradigmatic commercials from 2010 and two from 2009, which we chose because they all strongly suggested this broad crisis of masculinity of some kind. So uh, correct, me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but reflecting back on that moment where we did the, the kind of cursory quantitative analysis or content analysis of, of all the commercials from those different years, it seems like that was valuable not only because it set the foundation for what we were doing, so we knew that we weren't just cherry-picking commercials that had these bizarre themes and were actually just outliers, so we knew that was a real shift going on between years, but it also showed us what we did not want to do. Uh, since we, we weren't set in our method when we tried that, but we weren't satisfied with the type of story we could tell or the depth of analysis if we did that broader content analysis. Right. So we started with the coding just to kind of see what was going on. But then we realized, as you said, that we needed to employ some other sort of uh, method in order to communicate what we were seeing in 2010 more clearly. So thinking back to the project as a whole, what would you say would be our main contributions? Or maybe uh, could you share one or two findings that we had? I think we saw a really stark shift between how men were depicted in the early 2000s, and specifically in Messner and Montez de Oca's piece, um, versus what we saw in the later 2000s. So in their piece, they found this trope of the lovable loser appearing quite frequently. And so they described this as men who would appear in the commercials and they say would do something really embarrassing in front of a woman, but at the end they always had friends and they always had beer to kind of fall back on. So the audience felt like they were with the men. They were laughing with them. In contrast, in 2009 and 2010, we don't feel as the audience that we're supposed to be laughing with the men, but actually that we're supposed to be pretty concerned about what's going on with them. So we found in 2009, the men appear sort of more physically and emotionally vulnerable, but they're still pretty okay in the end. So we see them getting like attacked or being physically injured, but in the end, they're still okay. Now, in 2010, we do see a, an even stronger shift. And so there we see that the men are in trouble, but the viewer is not supposed to identify with those men. They're supposed to be concerned about them. And so what we think this means is that it's a reflection of 
sort of broader insecurities in that particular cultural moment and historical moment following the Great Recession in which there's all of this concern about white patriarchal masculinity as being in crisis. Um, and the commercials in 2010 clearly reflect that. Would it be safe to say that for both of us, this was a topic-driven project, or in other words, the topic came before the methodological choice? Absolutely. I think both of us came together realizing that this was a topic worthy of discussing, but we weren't really sure how to engage with it in an academic manner. So we saw a lot of um, pop culture outlets like Jezebel or other online blogs talking about it, but we really wanted to do a more in-depth analysis with it. And so it was when one of our graduate professors offered a graduate course in discourse methods and analysis that we thought this would be a really great opportunity to sort of explore that more in depth. As I'm listening to you talk about this, it really highlights the importance of opportunity or, or I guess really luck when you think through the steps that it took. I mean, we're, we're sharing an office in grad school, so we happen to come to school on Monday and we each saw these Super Bowl commercials and we push each other not just to think about it, but to actually do something with it and, and turn it into research. I mean, even if we waited a few days to come to the office, maybe that excitement would have been gone and it might not have happened. And then we have this course being offered on discourse analysis by Teresa Gowan, which you mentioned, which gives us an opportunity to actually work through these ideas and think about our methodological approach. And then to even build on top of that, even the timing was right. We're each working on our dissertations, and here's a side project that comes along that gives us a chance to basically avoid thinking about or completing our dissertations. Right, and I think also um, this might relate to some of the questions that you want to talk about later, but I think just the ways in which the sort of data were available to us and the extent to which we were able to engage with that while still having these other larger dissertation projects going on. So if we were say, interested in doing another ethnographic project, that really wouldn't have been feasible at that moment. But because we wanted to look at the Super Bowl commercials specifically, that was something that we were able to do at that time. Yeah, so it was not only available, but also very clearly bounded. Right, exactly. So did we, think back, did we consider other methodological approaches or even variations on what we did end up doing? We thought that a qualitative analysis would be better here since... We were looking not just at certain symbols, how frequently they appeared, but actually like the social ramifications of them, right? So in other words, we weren't really trying to prove that the crisis of masculinity is real. So we're not saying it appears X number of times and therefore is real. Um, rather, we were trying to understand that this discourse was something that was real in its consequences. So we wanted to see how it appeared and the variations on that and the kind of meanings that we could draw from that. We did have suggestions from some people that we should try to say, have an analysis of what the audience is thinking. And so I think those suggestions were based on this classic study that Janice Radway did of women reading romance novels. And so what that study found was that the women in these reading groups weren't actually taking what they were reading at face value, but they were kind of imbuing these romance novels with their own meaning. And so that brought up a lot of questions about how the audience is interpreting the Super Bowl commercials. So certainly we as academics can say what sort of meaning we are finding there, but we weren't saying what the audience was seeing. And while we don't have anything against these kinds of studies, it wasn't really what we wanted to look at here. And certainly I think we still both think that could be an area of future research. Yeah, which also goes back to the bounded nature of what we were trying to do. I mean, that, right. would have, that would have been this massive 
multi-year study, really, if we, if we tried to conduct focus groups or go out into the world and interview all these people or show them the commercials themselves. Right. And we have faced some pushback um, when we've tried to present this study to the more mainstream sociological audience. So, for instance, we spoke with the top sociology journal about whether our study would be a good fit. And they asked, you know, what was our end for the study? And they really wanted more of a kind of traditional quantitative approach. And that was something that we couldn't provide them. And so we actually went to a women's studies journal for this study. And so I think um, it really is these more kind of interdisciplinary areas that are more welcome to this kind of work. Thinking back to that decision, and I remember when we received that response from the journal that that you're talking about, it would have been possible for us to provide an N and made it look like more of this large-scale quantitative study and run some sort of regression showing, you know, here's here's the trend line and we're seeing more of this and less of that. But it would have been forcing the method onto the topic and it wouldn't have been the best way to get at the questions we wanted to ask and we would have been doing it so it seemed more scientific and quantitative. Right. I don't know if we could have run regression models, but... Yeah, we could have, we <laughs> yes. could have tried. <laughs> we could have tried, yes. So earlier you were talking about access to the data and our ability to get copies of these commercials. Reflecting back, could you talk a bit more about how we chose which commercials we wanted to look at? Right. So we were interested in the year that we saw the commercials. So we knew we wanted to watch all of those commercials. Um, And then we realized if we wanted to claim that there was some sort of shift going on, we would have to look at earlier years as well. And so we found that 2010, 2009, I think 2008, were all available online. So that was great. That's an instance in which we had all of the data sort of like given to us, and that's super, super rare in sociology um, and academic research in general. It was very easy to access those. But years prior to that were much more sparse. We couldn't really get our hands on that. And so while we did try to watch all of the commercials that we could find in the 2000s prior to 2008, we were really limited in the claims that we could make about that. Also, when we were publishing, we did encounter some snafus with the companies that put out the commercials in terms of receiving permissions, but I think that might be considered more of an editorial challenge rather than a methodological one. Well, that leads perfectly to my next question. What other challenges did we face or or unexpected difficulties? One of the things that we talked about a lot and something that we've thought about in terms of our methodological approach is how there's not really a right or wrong answer with semiotics or discourse analysis. And so I was trying to think back to whether or not there were certain moments when you and I, Kyle, like really disagreed about a meeting. And I don't think we ever encountered that, but I do think that each of us sort of brought different things to the project, right? So um, I think there was an instance in which you were really interested in the ways in which men in one of the commercials were like wandering around in the fields and how that represented how they were lost in nature and how they were supposed to be overcoming something. And I think that was because of your training or your experience or interest in studying sociology of gender and the history of men's rights movements. In contrast, I was super interested in the career builders commercial in this moment in which a man goes up to his coworker and you see his uh, white styrofoam drinking cup right next to this man's pair of white briefs and the sort of like queer underpinnings of that. And that obviously was, you know, the product of my training in gender and um, queer studies. All right. So we each came from these different perspectives. We were having these different types of observations. How did we know 
what counted as data or what techniques did, did we employ since it, it wasn't just choosing out a few moments that we thought were kind of exciting. Right. So we started out just kind of by watching every single commercial and we tried to do a kind of basic coding of all of the commercials, which I think we adapted from previous semiotic work that was done on bodies and media. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, we tried to look for like the actor's demographics, the plot, the kind of product being sold. And we talked through together some of the kind of major themes that we saw and what that may or may not meant. Um, and then from there, we really picked out the kind of like paradigmatic commercials from each year and worked through those meetings more in depth together. I suppose that's a, an answer to the previous question as well, although I might not call it a challenge, but one of the things we've both reflected on is how do you make this convincing to an audience? Right. I mean, I mean, it is the type of research where it's easy for someone who's skeptical to say, well, they just chose a commercial that is an outlier or a commercial that supported the view that they already had. Um, right. And that, and even looking at publishing in a mainstream sociology journal, they wanted an end partially for that reason. Right. And so if I could ask you a question, how do you think we were able to achieve that? Hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. And I, I suppose I should start by saying that I hope we were able to achieve that. And if we did, I, th I think it's through a combination of, of depth and detail. And that's really the only way to earn the reader's trust. You, you can't just jump to the end argument. Right. Yeah, because like we were saying, this is a method where it's really easy to dismiss. You can you can look at me and say, well, he's already interested in the crisis of masculinity. So of, of course, he's reading it that way. Of course, his conclusion relates to that. Right. But if you can show if you can show those details and walk them through the argument and say, you know, th this is kind of weird. The symbols don't have to be this way. Or maybe the symbols aren't always this way. So, for example, we brought up the, the guys wandering in the wilderness, um, pointing out, well, normally in, in commercials, when you see men in the wilderness, if they are wandering, they know they're lost, or they're wandering because they're, they're conquering the wilderness. Right. And, and um, I, I think the other thing that's convincing, or at least it was convincing to me, is that seeing these themes travel across the commercials. So you're providing those details, but also making links. Um, so, for example, it wasn't only dockers that showed men happily wandering around in just their underwear. Right after that, we see the Career Builders commercial. So you can show the same type of details and say there seems to be some sort of message that's being repeated over and over. Um, or even just looking to another commercial that we didn't spend as much time on, um, but the one where I think it's Jim Nance's voice and there's a, there's a guy and his girlfriend and he's holding her purse and he seems lost and they're saying something like, take off that skirt, Jason. Uh, I forget the actual quote. Um, but again, you're seeing it repeated over and over. You know, that, that same theme of be angry, you're deluded, and take action. Absolutely. And I think actually, not to jump the gun, I think that actually um, flows into the next question that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, definitely. So generalizability and validity. These are two central concepts. They appear in every research methods class, and they're often talked about as one of the measures of how good your method is, how, how well the project turned out. But in a project like this, where it's so much about interpretation and depth, what do you even do with those concepts? Certainly something like content analysis or something that's more quantitative or numbers-based can more easily provide a sense of generalizability. But that's just something that you can't really have with a semiotics or a discourse analysis. And so I think really our ultimate test in reliability came from sort of presenting and publishing our research. We talked about it together, of course, and with 
our other graduate students that we worked with um, and with our advisors, but it really wasn't until I think we presented it to academic reviewers, to academic audiences, that we really felt that, okay, we had a story here, this is something that other people are seeing too when we present these commercials, it's not something that we're just making up or pulling out of thin air. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I also think there's a way of answering this question by embracing how the Super Bowl is not a generalizable event or, or not typical in any way. Uh, I, mean, I mean, we've we always talk about how the Super Bowl has over, what is it, 110 million viewers every year. So this is breaking records for the most viewed event. And because of that, the commercials cost uh, like a ridiculous amount, something like three or four million for every 30 seconds. This, this isn't your standard event, but there's something special about that. And we know it's a particularly important cultural moment. Right. And, and because of that, we're almost taking advantage of the research that the advertisers themselves are doing because they're spending so much money that you, you know they're trying to pick up on the social currents of that year and, and find something that resonates with the public. And, and we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, um, but we know something's going on and they're, and they're trying their hardest. Totally. I think actually we tried to get some sense of what the market research was. I don't think we were able to find that, but that would be interesting um, if someone does do research on that, but we were not able to access that. But you're absolutely right. I think the Super Bowl is a unique event and that's exactly why people watch it. And that's exactly why we think it's an important thing to be investigating. Yeah. And, and you could imagine a study like this where we sought out commercials that were in less prominent spaces where uh, advertisers had a chance to play around with ideas or maybe a more targeted market like a men's health journal uh, or magazine, not journal. I'm, I'm a little bit too caught up in academia. Um, <laughs> but again, a place, but this is a very central place where they know they're going to have a lot of eyes. So they want to put their, you know, their, their best image forward. And I don't know if this was directly relevant to when we were doing the study, but I think as time has gone on, I think the commercials have become actually even more of a more of an important um, viewing event as people tend to say watch more TV on the internet instead of actually watching it on television so the relationship to commercials has changed right so um, we can't say that they're watching commercials between all of the things that they're watching on TV but people still go and sit down and try to watch the Super Bowl commercials because of how special they are yeah, and you can you can even see this in how the league has responded. And this is a development since we did our research. I only think it's three or four years old or so. But the league itself on its website, NFL.com, has a digital archive where it stores every commercial that was shown during the Super Bowl game that year. Um, so you don't even have to watch the game. You can go to the website and avoid watching the sport itself and just watch the commercials. And I, I can't think of any other sporting event that does that. Right. Yes, it really is a unique phenomenon. Um, how about positionality? So this is another central concept when, when students are learning about research methods. And it's also something that I know both you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about with our own ethnographic research. But how about a, prog how about a project like this where you're studying commercials? Did you think about positionality? Yeah, so I think this relates to some of the things we were talking about earlier. So um, semiotic analysis is never objective. It's never absolute, right? So I don't think we were ever trying to claim that we were doing an objective approach. Um, instead, I think we just kind of came at it as two sociologists with somewhat similar but also somewhat different academic trainings and with eyes toward 
different kind of signs and symbols. Um, and so, as I said, you were interested and trained in more kind of gender studies um, and history of men and masculinity, whereas I was trained in um, queer theory and feminist studies. And so we each brought our own sort of interest to the table. You know, that, that's also a key part of the answer to the question, that really important question that you turned on me before, which is, how do we build trust in the reader? How do we convince them of our argument? And I think positionality or, or really transparency in the writing is really key to doing this. So we don't hide that semiotic or discursive analysis is at some level a subjective, a subjective approach. And we don't hide where we're coming from. So we reveal this is our training, these are our interests, and that gives the reader a chance to work through the data and decide whether it's convincing or not. And they can reject us, our argument, but they know where we came from and why we arrived at that conclusion. Right. And I do think it's important, too, to mention that semiotic analysis, and especially the tradition that we are drawing on, is something that is steeped in Marxism, in um, literary theory, and in psychoanalysis. And so they're always interested in these questions of power, but the specific ways in which we employed that depended on our unique positions as researchers. That's that's a really good point. And um, in a sense, the next question is about the politics as well, and that's, did you have an idea of who the audience would be or who you were writing this for during the during the project? Yeah, this project has various iterations, and I think each of them has a different audience. But I do think something that's super exciting about this kind of research, and especially with data like the Super Bowl commercials, is that it has this really broad appeal, right? So you really can do a kind of like, not necessarily public sociology, but sort of public engagement with your data. So Obviously, uh, the journal article that we wrote was intended for an academic audience, for people who are interested in gender studies. And I think we kind of see our project as kind of um, bridging the divide between, say, sociologists um, or cultural theorists and more interdisciplinary scholars. But we've also had a lot of success and a lot of fun, I think, bringing this to the classroom. Um, and we actually have a forthcoming chapter in an anthology called Teaching Sex and Gender in Contemporary America that was edited by Kristen Haltener and Ryan Pilgrim, um, in which we talk about our experiences engaging this material in the classroom. And in that, we also um, lay out and provide a teaching activity that others can utilize and build on. Speaking of teaching, do you have any practical tricks of the trade or advice you could give someone who's just starting out on a project like this, uh, reflecting back on your own experience? I think one of the things that you and I sort of figured out in doing this, and you can jump in here if you have um, more specific recollections, but it was just the extent to which we both needed to be kind of like brave in the ideas that we were willing to try. So we had to be willing to kind of throw things out there that maybe seemed silly um, and to figure out whether or not those interpretations really stuck or were really meaningful. So for instance, I think um, you and I were talking about this instance in one of the commercials in which there's this really fleeting sort of bird noise is kind of like, is it a crow or something that makes this noise? I think noise? it's a vulture. So, a vulture, yes, that's what it was. And so I think I brought it up and it, I was wondering if that was indicative of what the men were supposed to be feeling and how they're supposed to be in danger. And it felt like kind of a stretch, but I think you and I worked out together the extent to which, yes, actually this does really make sense and it really um, kind of shapes what the viewer is supposed to be feeling in that moment in the commercial. Yeah, that's a really good point about being brave or at least trying out all the avenues when you're doing this type of research because you have these these tiny moments that seem inconsequential, but then you start reading across text and you start 
looking at other commercials where this is happening and you realize there actually is something going on with that particular symbol and it is worth unpacking. Or, or in this particular case, you just have that solitary noise, which really did seem trivial. It's trivial. It's almost silly that we got we started paying attention to it. But then you realize you've heard it other places, and it's probably just the stock vulture noise that all these films or westerns use. Uh, but here you hear the noise, and the men are happily singing and and dancing, and they're they're um, they're wandering through the field in a group and without pants on. But they're thrilled, and they don't realize that the bird noise is actually a sign of impending doom. Um, so instead of the Western where it's a sign of desperation and the main figure looks up and they understand what's going on, this is a key moment for our argument that the commercials are presenting these men as having a false consciousness or, or being delusional, as calling, calling the viewer to not sympathize with them, but to understand how ridiculous they are. And all that comes from us being willing to work through this small idea together. One of us saying, hey, maybe we should pay attention to this instead of just moving forward to the more obvious symbols like the the man standing in front of the brick wall at the end, which is this very heavy-handed statement that's clearly deserving of analysis and doesn't take as much work to analyze. Right. To conclude, we like to think big picture about the, the strengths and the limitations of a method. So I'm wondering, to start, what were some of the limitations of the approach? Well, we provide an in-depth discursive analysis of the commercials in 2009 and 2010, you know, we're unable to know the extent to which these commercials have an effect on the people watching them. So are people who are watching the commercials active consumers of what they're seeing, or are they more passive? Are they even paying attention to the commercials? I think you and I both agree that yes, they are, just specifically because this is such a unique sort of commercial and advertising viewing event. But we don't know the extent to which men or any of the audience really is taking this at face value. Are they seeing the humor in the commercials and doing kind of a subversive reading of this? There's also an assumption that the audience or the intended audience is, say, white straight males. So we don't know what people who are outside of that category, so women or people of color, how they are interpreting what they're seeing. We also don't know how these ads hold up outside the U.S., right? So while this is intended to hit a U.S. audience, there could be many other people watching it, and we don't know how they're engaging with that as well. And so while we think that the commercials themselves bear examination, we still think that future research could look at how this event is consumed and engaged with. All right, to finish, let's go back to that classroom of students, and now they've been exposed to this approach, so they have an idea of what semiotic and discursive analysis is, but tell them why this is an approach worth considering. So kind of kind of sell it to them. I think this kind of project is actually really, really useful um, as a teaching tool and as something that you can use in the sociological classroom. For one, all of the data is available. So the students can actually work through this with us or on their own, right? So they can watch these commercials and they can come up with their own interpretations. The second thing is that it's just really fun. You know, students um, mostly enjoy watching these commercials and there's a lot of humor in them. And so it's fun for them to be able to interpret them and come up with their own meanings and feel like they really own the analysis, right? And we actually think that this is something that is especially useful in this particular moment in the university setting. So I think often in the neoliberal university, students are expecting instructors to come to them in the classroom and to sort of like impart knowledge to them, right? And so coding or discursive analysis allows students to take ownership 
of what they're learning. And this is especially useful, I think, and you and I have talked about this quite a lot, Kyle, um, about how this kind of methodology is useful when you're talking about something that is particularly um, contested or like delicate or something that could be interpreted as the students or by the students as political. So, right, you, I think, have experienced students, you know, wondering if you're teaching about gender inequality because you actually believe it's a thing that exists or because you are like supposed to teach it, right? And so this kind of approach allows students to actually see what's going on and then come to it with their own conclusions. I I agree with you completely there. And I think those are really important points. And I also think you can even go bigger with it. So you're saying that students really enjoy watching these types of commercials, but we know that people outside the classroom enjoy that too. So it, it potentially could be seen as trivial, but because it's seen as trivial, it almost operates as a Trojan horse of sorts where you can get people watching these commercials and then you can get a conversation started. And maybe you're watching a sporting event with someone and you point out about a commercial, oh, you know, that's really different than what we saw last year. Or why is there such an emphasis on men wearing pants? Or why does that person present it in that way? What is the commercial trying to tell us? And then, and then the key is that you show that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not natural. The the advertiser are making decisions and it's affecting the way we see the world. So what's going on here? And if you get even that far, that that's pretty good. Right. So it's something that seems kind of like a frivolous sort of thing to be engaging with, but actually has really profound sort of intellectual and political implications. Yeah. So it's both the, da- it's both the, the danger, but also the strongest point. That's easy to dismiss. But once you get past that, and start to explain it, you can almost trick them into caring about something. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a I think that's a good point to end on, the idea of tricking people into caring about things. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I try to conduct all of my research. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to reflect on this project. Um, it was fun for me to hear you talk about it, so hopefully the audience agrees. And it was fun to talk. Thank you for having me. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance. Thank you.